I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everyone, this is Motherboard Editor-in-Chief Jason Kebler, and as you may have noticed, the Federal Communications Commission is considering repealing the net neutrality protections later this week. Uh, We've been writing about this topic for years, and uh, if you're new to the topic, uh, A, welcome, and B, sorry, there's not a whole lot of basics in this conversation, but... uh, I decided to call up Corey Doctorow, who is a science fiction author and also a friend of Motherboard, the co-editor of Boing Boing, which is one of the internet's best and oldest tech news sites, as well as an activist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and a few other places. Um, Corey's been following this topic for a long time. So I decided to talk to him about some of the arguments I've seen against net neutrality and talk to him about whether those arguments are being taken in good faith or not. Uh, I also talked to him about what happens after net neutrality is repealed. Is there a next step? Um, And then we also talked about alternate internet infrastructure as well as building a better internet and how even if you don't know anything about net neutrality, you can tell that this argument is not being entered into good faith by telecom companies and the FCC. Basically, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about what we've seen the last uh, couple weeks with net neutrality. I think more interesting, at least to me, are some of the pro-Ajit Pai arguments that have come out the last couple of days that you've been tweeting about and responding to. I personally feel like they aren't necessarily being made in good faith, but I can't exactly articulate why. One thing that I keep seeing over and over again is this argument that somehow zero rating has improved innovation or that we don't need these Title II regulations to protect net neutrality. And I'm wondering, what have you been seeing as far as the debate goes? And uh, what is your sort of general stance on on what we need to protect the open internet at this point? Well, yeah, I, I think you're right that zero rating is being posed as a wedge issue here. And, you know, this is consistent with the overall problems with the way that we talk about monopoly and antitrust, where there was a shift driven mostly by Chicago economists to move from viewing the problem with monopoly as one of um, stifling innovation, undue market concentration and power. And in fact, that was was conceived of as kind of a benefit that like if you could concentrate market power into the hands of a good firm, then that firm would be able to use the excess profits from that to innovate in ways that small firms couldn't do because they couldn't accumulate the sums. And so we switched from 
enforcing monopoly on the basis of concentration and moved it to mere price gouging, that the only measure of whether the consumer was harmed by monopolism was whether prices went up. And since online services historically have cost nothing, we've had this kind of axiomatic idea that there is no problem with monopoly online because there is no price gouging online. Anything else that firms want to do in terms of collusion is okay, so long as they're not price gouging. The problem is that the reason we like the internet is not the mere fact that it doesn't cost anything. It's the fact that we have so much that doesn't cost anything. It's the diversity of the internet. And it's, it's useful to think about where the cable industry and the FCC were in the early days of the internet, like where we've got to versus where we thought we'd get to. Because in the old days, we thought that the um, apotheosis of network diversity was the 500 channel cable universe. Like this was the thing in the early days of digital TV standardization. They said, someday you will have 500 channels of information in your house, right? That's what they thought of as like the most robust information marketplace you can imagine. Well, you know, today you've got like multiple billions of channels coming into your house. And, you know, the the idea that we could have quote unquote succeeded in our telecoms policy if we'd only got as far as creating 500 channels is really like key to understanding where we're coming from. So if all you care about is 500 channels, then zero rating looks great, right? Because the 500 most moneyed channels on the internet bribe your cable operator not to charge you for access to them. Nothing else actually uh, gains any traction because before you know whether or not you want it, you have to pay extra to see it because it's inside your data cap instead of outside your data cap. So no one else ever gains any traction. And you have like the, the thousand year rule of the 500 channels and you call it victory for information diversity and information policy in America. But you know, when posed against what we've had from the internet since the, the rise of a much more diverse federated system that anyone can play in without permission, it really you can really see just how impoverished that vision is. Right. Can we talk very briefly about this uh, Portugal telecom meme that's been going uh, around? I saw you sort of engage with it. Uh, for people who are listening who are not familiar, uh, there's this photo that's been shared showing uh, Portuguese telecom having uh, basically different data packs. You know, you can listen to Spotify for $5 a month unlimited without accounting for your data, Netflix for like five euro a month or something like this. The sort of people who are favoring a repeal of net neutrality uh, regulations have pointed out that that meme that's spreading is not the only data package being offered, uh, you know, by this Portuguese telecom that you can pay more and get sort of uh, your traditional telecom package. And I think that's the that's the argument that I've seen quite often is that, uh, you know, with zero rating or, or uh, different non-net neutral packages, consumers might get a diversity of choices in the packages that they're offered. I don't know. To me, that seems like it just it's picking winners, winners and losers as far as I'm concerned. But I don't know if you have a different perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, it's a case where the marginal choice, the, the choice that a person might make at the at the very edge of the matrix will reduce the overall utility of the whole matrix. It, ma- it makes things worse for everybody, even if it makes it a little bit better for them. You know, we, we have lots of examples of that, right? You know, it's better for me if I throw my lawn clippings on my neighbor's lawn, but it's not better for everyone if that happens. It kind of contributes to a, a breakdown where, where everybody's sneaking around throwing lawn clippings on each other's lawns. And, you know, the idea... 
that either in Portugal or New Zealand is the other one that's going around, and in America where Verizon is is producing these uncapped packages and uh, and T-Mobile as well producing these uncapped packages that exempt services that have paid a premium to them to be carried, that that produces the best outcome for America today and tomorrow. It's really easy to see why not if you just imagine the contrafactual where the day that AOL opened up its internet service it could go to all the ISPs in America and say, we'll pay you extra to make AOL free if you will impose caps on all the services that rival AOL. You know, that would have cemented the long-term ascendancy of AOL, but it would have come at the cost of everything else that we know and love. And the point of an expert regulator is to ensure that the best factual policies are pursued, right? That there is evidence in favor of the policy. And we have a lot of good evidence in favor of the policy of a neutral network, which is everything that's happened since the internet started. And we have a lot of evidence against the non-neutral network, which is everything that happened before then, right? Don't forget that the way we got the neutral internet was through lawsuits like Carter Phone and Hushaphone, where AT&T was the only game in town, which is the case in many cities. And they said that connecting literally anything to the phone network without their permission was against the their contract and, and, and also against the law. And so, you know, Hushaphone's a really good example of this. There was a company that made a plastic cup that fit over the mouthpiece of your phone so that when you talked into it, people around you couldn't eavesdrop as easily. And AT&T argued that this plastic cup threatened the overall functional uh, efficiency of the Bell system and tried to get it shut down. And that was the bridge too far where the court said, sorry guys, like there's just no evidentiary basis for asserting that the plastic cup is undermining your phone network. And, you know, from there we got into Carter phone and, and, and into other decisions that opened up the network to anyone who wanted to plug something into it. And although that was worse for the Bell system as a, you know, kind of monopoly provider, it got it got a sl- smaller slice of this of this pie. The pie got a lot bigger and a lot more American firms, a lot more firms worldwide were able to bring a lot more offerings to the public. You know, y- you may remember that there was a time when your phone bill had a line item on it every month for caller ID which is like, it's the from line in your email. So to look at who your email came from before you open the email, you had to pay a dollar, right? This this is like the if value, then right theory of telecoms operation, you know, that if something has value, then the phone company has a right to monetize it. Well, it's really clear that what you want to access on the internet has value. And the way that they monetize that is by going to the people who you want to connect with and demanding money to give you the phone company's customer, what you want from them. And from your perspective, as a person who wants to access that website, it is more optimal for you. You get more choice of more websites if you know that the websites that you want to access merely have to produce something good, not produce something good and an agreement with whoever your local phone company is for you to reach them on the best terms possible. Right. I think that's a really interesting historical perspective that Uh, I don't know, like we have a pretty young readership. And one thing uh, that I've noticed is you guys have been able to send a ton of calls uh, to battleforthenet.com, which is, uh, you know, a group that is organizing some of these uh, pro net neutrality protests 
calls the FCC, Congress, et cetera, et cetera. I also noticed that on the list there, they have sites like Newsgrounds and some some other sites that you'd think of as sort of uh, like you guys have been around for a while. You've been through this uh, for a while. And I would imagine that a lot of your readers have too. So you uh, maybe they can remember some of these things that phone companies did, uh, you know, in the 90s, 80s, etc. I'm curious, uh, do you think there's any merit to that? Like, obviously, we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of uh, support from places like Reddit and Twitter, etc. But it does seem like the sort of legacy outlets and old internet, if you will, are the ones who are standing up to protect net neutrality, sort of like raising their voices above the, those in the crowd. At least that's what I see. Oh, surely we can be classic internet, not old internet. <laughs> Still very good internet, though, I must say. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, there's something to that, but that doesn't explain Tumblr, which, you know, until their CEO uh, took the king shilling from the phone company, uh, or, or, you know, their CEO's uh, uh, parent company took their king shilling from the from the phone company. They were a real leader in fighting for network neutrality, too. You know, I think that, like, maybe you're right that, that uh, people who've been around the block a couple of times uh, know what what it looks like, how, how, th- how bad things can be without it. I mean, you know, the analogy might be to um, financial regulation, right, that, that before uh, Glass-Steagall, you had banks gambling with depositors' money, getting horrifically leveraged, risking the global financial system and creating long depressions that, you know, wiped out significant fractions of America's wealth. And so they created these regulations to separate the investment arms and the savings arms of the bank. But it was Clinton who who, who got rid of um, Glass-Steagall and, and, and him saying, well, what's the worst that can possibly happen? And there just weren't, maybe weren't enough voters around to remember, oh, yeah, no, it's pretty bad. Uh, and so they were able to get away with it. And we get the 2008 crash a few years later. So, so maybe that's it. But I think that it's not like there's a lot of people out there who are like, God, I really love and trust my phone company. And I wish they had more power. You know, I think the most a phone company could possibly hope for is a kind of indifference to them. Um, but, you know, in, in an era in which, in living memory, we've had um, three-hour videos of people trying to unsubscribe from Comcast go viral. <laughs> it's it's really hard to find someone who's going to go like, God, they're so trustworthy and honorable. If only they could have more control over my daily life, you know. <laughs> Right. I mean, on some level, the fact that uh, the mere fact that ISPs are pushing for this and have been for so long tells me it's wrong. Like, obviously, you need to uh, evaluate the argument on its merits. But just seeing them enact, you know, various anti-competitive laws on the state level after, you know, years and years and years of trying and they've pushed them through on, you know, 25 different states, uh, you know, all the different things that they push for, it seems like, you know, none of them are good. And so the mere fact that they are like care so much about this tells you that they don't have the best of intentions. Well, I think you're right in, in the sense that like when, when whenever you have a, a technical question, you are unlikely to have the expertise to evaluate it on its merits. Because even if you are a deeply technical person in one domain, we have so many technical domains that we have to contend with, you know, health and environmental policy and, you know, space travel and whatever, right? There, there are so many different domains that we have to contend with that are super technical that you can't be an expert in all of them. And so what you need is a heuristic for how to know who to trust. And, 
you know, the, that heuristic can get people into trouble. It's like how we get vaccine denial because people have a bad heuristic about who to trust. I, I think that it's fair to say that all the people who deny vaccines lack the scientific um, nous to evaluate those claims independently. And what they have instead is a rule of thumb about how to know who is trustworthy. It's probably also true that the majority of people who support vaccination lack that scientific background, but they have a better rule of thumb that they use to figure out who to trust and who not to trust when they tell them whether or not to vaccinate their kids. I think that it's not a bad heuristic that a company that you have consistently bad dealings with and that messes you over at every turn is not a company that has your best interests at heart. And I think that there's the, another factor in play, which is that in technical debates, it's very hard to engage people with substance, partly because they have to acquire some expertise in order to even understand what the substance is, and partly because they're just boring, right? Whether we're talking about like DRM or neighboring rights and copyright, like the broadcasting right, or, or any of a hundred other things that can affect your life in really meaningful ways, but which are like so esoteric and so dull and, and eye-glazing as soon as we talk about them, that it's very hard to engage people with the substance. But procedural irregularity is really easy to spot. I used to work on this campaign for this uh, UN treaty about uh, this thing called the broadcasting right, which I'm not going to try to explain because it's really boring, but it's really important. We would go to these treaty meetings at, in Geneva and we would like make interventions and we'd write documents and we'd hand them out to the delegates and we'd post them online and we'd write up transcripts and do all this stuff. And, you know, this small audience of wonks paid attention and, and you know, we did such a better job of communicating about it than the actual UN did that we were kind of winning in that tiny, narrow domain. But then this amazing thing happened, which is that someone at these meetings started stealing our handouts and hiding them in the toilets. And like, that is so obviously not the thing that you do if you're on the side of the right and just <laughs> that everyone was like, something bad just happened in Geneva. I don't entirely understand what it is, but no one hides someone else's handouts in the toilet because they're on the side of the angels, right? And the same way, like those TPP meetings, they were so esoteric and boring, but the negotiators for TPP were not negotiating an extreme secrecy because they thought that you'd be pleasantly surprised and they didn't want to ruin it. Yeah, I mean, it's like so many other things, like the healthcare bill, like... So, you, yeah, exactly. So John McCain showing up and saying, like, you guys just didn't observe regular order, so I'm not voting for your stuff. I agree with you, but I think that the principle is that we have to, we have to uh, act in a way that does not discredit the democratic process, no matter how important our goals are. And so when people act in ways that discredit the democratic process, then, you know, when they throw away millions of comments, when they introduce major regulation in, in, over the Thanksgiving weekend, when, you know, like one after another after another of, of just, you know, garbage people tactics, then I think that it's, it's easy for people to just take their rule of thumb, which is shenanigans are usually there to mess me over and say, oh, well, then this is definitely something that's messing me over. Right, right, right. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
So uh, it seems at this point as though the math is against uh, you know people who support net neutrality. Um, I don't really have any reason for optimism that uh, even even though we've seen such great outpouring of uh, you know calls to the FCC and protests and things like this, you know. But I'm wondering uh, where are you at right now? Like, are you still hopeful that maybe this uh, won't come to pass to come a month from now, uh, and then? You know, if the FCC does repeal these regulations, what is the next step in terms of trying to protect the internet as we know it? Some of my optimism comes from, again, from my heuristics, because like some of what I understand about this process is way above my pay grade and expertise. But people I trust have made convincing arguments. So Tim Wu is an old friend of mine. We actually went to elementary school together and. Tim just had this essay in the New York Times, an op-ed, where he said the way that the Supreme Court has ruled in terms of the conduct of federal agencies is that these expert agencies have to respond to facts. And so when the Title II regulation was brought down, when the 2000, first 2005 regulation was brought down under GW, those uh, were based on facts that are presumptively true because the regulation carried, right? So the fact that the regulation was enacted tells you that it resided upon a fact pattern that just justified it. For Ajit Pai to roll back those regulations, he has to show that the facts have changed. And there is just no evidence that the facts have changed. There's no problems with investment in telecoms. There's no problem with, you know, the car- carriers being unduly burdened by regulation. They're just the, the, There's no way that it would pass the giggle test. And America has a unique advantage in its um, independent judiciary and the power of the judiciary to roll back legislation. You know, I'm, I'm from Canada. I lived in the UK for 13 years. Now I live here in the US and I've done activist work in all three countries. And the thing that the U.S. has is that if you can convince like one federal judge or three appellate judges or five Supreme Court judges that something the government has done doesn't pass constitutional muster or doesn't accord with the jurisprudence, then that judge can like kick down the rules that the administration has done or, or that Congress uh, has, has made. That means that you don't have to be able to like sway the administration by offering lucrative jobs to civil servants who are going to rotate out in three years. It means you don't have to sway Congress by making campaign contributions to the majority of congressmen. It means that all you need to do is bring a forceful argument to court. And Tim has laid out the contours of that argument. And I think it's a good one. And I trust Tim to be like knowledgeable about those arguments. I mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've, I've, my heuristic has gone wrong. But that was, I mean, really the most hopeful thing I've seen so far. But the other thing that's hopeful, you brought it up with the healthcare debate. The Republicans have uh, swallowed a, a poison pill by becoming the party whose campaign is that um, the government is bad at everything. And uh, as a result, they've been able to gin up support for their position by creating dysfunctional governments for like the entire Obama period, but even before, right? The worst the government did, especially during Democratic years, but, but even during Republican years, the more forcefully the Republicans could make their point that the government couldn't be trusted to manage our affairs. Well, that's left them with a kind of administrative incompetence Right. When, when you're the party that is only good at doing bad, then y- you lack the skill to do good. And so here we have the administration, the Senate and the Congress and a majority of the Supreme Court 
and they've not managed to do anything except tinker around the margins through administrative orders. Now, some of those administrative orders have done some real damage, don't get me wrong, but they've not managed to pass any signature legislation. There's a lot of people who are asking, well, is net neutrality a distraction to get the budget through? I think that the reason net neutrality and the budget are on the plate at the same time is that they just can't coordinate their stuff. They can't figure out like how to how to come up with a, like an orderly progression that allows them to go from strength to strength and victory to victory and build momentum. You know, if they've managed to distract us over and over again by by larding bad thing onto bad thing, it's only because they haven't had the discipline to figure out how to create a game plan that everybody can fall in on. And so, you know, that's my other reason to hope. I don't I don't know that it will repeat itself. Just to push back on that a little bit, just I, I'd be curious on what you think. Uh, with regard to net neutrality, it seems like, you know, this is something that the FCC, these are regulations that the FCC needs to enforce. Um, you know, basically, it doesn't necessarily require the FCC to do anything to uh, to have Verizon start zero rating more things or to have Comcast start throttling things. Um, so I'm just, I'm curious, you know, from that perspective, it's like we we do need an active government in order to protect the regulations that have already been put into place. So that is a separate question to whether they can roll back net neutrality is can they just neglect it in, into uh, oblivion? So I, I think neglecting it into oblivion, you're right, it's like a much more viable possibility. But, you know, federal agencies can be sued to do their jobs. And we're, you know, getting back to court. Now, the court process takes a long time, but injunctions can happen quickly. And so you might see courts enjoining the FCC to take action while the court process works its way through. And again, like the more shambolic they are in office over the next 12 months or so, the worse things are going to go for them in the 2018 midterms. You know, I, I mean, I don't hold up the, the Democrats as paragons of discipline and, and uh, party unity by any means, but we are in a, a race between, uh, you know, the, the bad and the worse. And, you know, they, they don't have to be the, the Democrats don't have to be great. They just have to be better than the Republicans. And that's looking easier and easier all the time. And I think that a lot of Republican kingmakers and power brokers understand that. And they don't want to go into 2018 with this kind of um, handicap. And I think that if the FCC ends up just tangled in uh, the courts, keeps getting reversed by the courts, has these kind of tangible demonstrations of its incompetence and if the other side is emboldened by winning victory after victory over them that that's going to fare well for us and very badly for them right right so uh yeah net neutrality is probably not an issue at the moment that say a president is going to campaign on or you can make that your sole issue but i'm wondering do you think we're at a point where we should start to see more people run for office at a state and local level you know trumpeting uh, broadband competition, net neutrality, municipal broadband, things of this nature, because I, I would personally love to see more people run, you know, for mayors, mayorships around the country and state delegates and things of this nature on a platform that includes, you know, we're going to build out our own infrastructure or we're going to find a way to make our city competitive uh, from a broadband perspective. Well, you know, to use a, a, a very Canadian metaphor, that's definitely skating to where the puck is going to be, right, right? right? The number of people who get furious when their internet doesn't work only goes up from here on in, right? There is no future in which people are like, eh, who needs the internet, <laughs> right? So 
you know, I think that it's like if you want to lay the groundwork for like uh, long term credibility in a city, if you want to give people something that'll make a huge difference to them, then that's the that's that's certainly, I think, a pretty viable tactic. You know, I live in, in Burbank. We moved here a couple of years ago and we, we just bought a house uh, and we're moving in uh, and I on February 1st. And I know that Burbank has a fiber network. Burbank Water and Power, our, our municipally owned uh, utility has gigabit fiber running under the roads and it's what serves like Disney Studios, it's what serves Warner Studios, it's really fast uh, and and really well maintained. And I looked at the map and it literally runs under my new house. And so I called up Burbank Water and Power and I said, I'm going to be running a business, an incorporated business out of my new house. There's a fiber loop under the that runs under the foundation slab will you terminate it in my house and give me a gigabit? And they said, our exclusive franchise deal with Spectrum Cable prohibits us from terminating a connection in any property that's zoned residential. Well, that's like so obviously not good, right? And, and you know, the number of people here who like work in the studios, who go to work all day and use the fiber that runs under their houses that, and then go home and use the crummy cable network that uh, is nowhere near as fast, like literally like nowhere near as fast. Like I've got about a megabit up, I could have a gigabit up. Right. You, you know, that is a lot faster. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, that thousand fold increase in speed could be mine, but for the fact that there's some shenanigans. So I think any anyone who campaigned here and said, anyone who lives in Burbank is gonna get their internet a thousand times faster uh, at a lower price, that person would find themselves with a bunch of voters who uh, may be, in fact, just the dark matter of the electorate. Because remember, you know, especially municipal elections, none of the above wins almost every election. You know, we can chase tube-feeding activists like me and, and try and sway us for our votes. Or or you can try and go around and convince people to just never show up at the polls. And that blows up all of the assumptions about gerrymandering, about districting, and about polling, if you can get people who don't vote to vote. Right, right. I just want to run one last thing by you. Um, I'm not sure if you got a chance to read it, but when the uh, net neutrality order was released last week, I wrote a story about the fact that, uh, you know, maybe there's not a political answer here at a federal level. And uh, perhaps, you know, activists, community groups, local uh, governments should start looking at trying to basically build out alternative infrastructure. Um, I, obviously, it's extremely expensive in, in parts, but I think there are some good examples of both cities building municipal networks as well as sort of like nonprofit groups taking matters into their own hands, building like wireless ISPs, things of this nature. Um, where do you think the technology is right now in terms of being able to do something like that on a viable level, viable scale? And uh, what do you think of the idea as, as a whole, like more locally owned ISPs, fewer conglomerates? Well, you know, you guys ran that amazing piece about the, the Detroit uh, network of um, activist groups that are uh, wiring up Detroit with um, gigabit uh, microwave fixed fixed wireless that then um, punches down to fiber loops and, and uh, Wi-Fi loops. That's that's pretty exciting. I think that, you know, the holy grail is mesh and w no one really, I think, has cracked the problem of how do you create 
uh, mesh network that doesn't have routing tables that balloon to you know ridiculous proportions and and then make the whole network fall over because we're just trying to figure out who's connected to who uh, even before we can send a single bit from anyone to anyone else um, but you know the computers get faster ram gets cheaper every day and so who's to say that that won't be possible in the future for now i think the political utility of those muni networks and those cooperative networks is that they serve as a kind of existence proof that a better world is possible. I mean, we hear, oh, you know, the Koreans have have a, a network that puts ours to, to shame. And that's, you know, that's really nice. But like the Koreans don't live like Americans in lots of ways. They have, you know, they have a totally different geography. They have a different political system. They have a different history. They have this weird belligerent neighbor on their north that, that they're all related to, right? Like it's just, you know, the fact that the Koreans have managed it tells you almost nothing. There, there used to be this great column in Wired that Lisa Katayama wrote called Japanese Schoolgirl Watch. That was um, like things that Japanese schoolgirls were doing with the internet and phones that uh, were probably never ever going to be adopted in North America because the life circumstances of Japanese schoolgirls are very different to to uh, the you know median North American mobile user. But it was exciting to watch it, right? It was kind of cool to to watch this alternate pre reality progress. But when you hear that people in some, you know, rural North Carolina town have, have dropped their own fiber loop and, you know, they'll light it up for anyone, including the poorest and most vulnerable people who can't pass a credit check and they'll do it for a $10 deposit uh, against, um, you know, a gigabit of data. You know, that shows you that something better is possible, that if the phone companies aren't doing as well, it's because they're not as efficient as as these other models. And, you know, the hypothesis, the, the efficient market hypothesis is that, uh, markets make things efficient and you know it becomes tautological because then we say anything that a market is doing is by definition efficient and since we don't have a non-market alternative to compare it to um, we say you know the, the anything this this may not be the best but it's the least worst and anything else we do would just be worse than this well if you can show that that's not how it's actually playing out if you can like look at the next town over and see that they've got something better uh, and cheaper and that the only difference is that they're not you know beholden to a, a multinational uh hugely concentrated uh mobile carrier or, or or cable operator then you know that that tells you that something has gone wrong at the regulatory level that that these exclusive franchises that these companies operate on are not useful that they're not producing the outcomes that we want i mean i think i think that's very well said thank you so much for your time oh not at all uh this is cory doctorow from boing boing all right as always thank you so much for listening again i'm jason kebler uh this episode was produced by marina kozlock we do plan to keep making episodes of radio motherboard sorry for the weird schedule of late but uh, you should tell your friends about us if you like the show. We are Radio Motherboard on Apple Podcasts as well as iTunes and any other podcast app you might use. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.